0: International Teacher Magazine presents Talking About the ITM Podcast with your host, Andy Homden.
1: Nothing is changing how we teach and even what we teach more than educational technology, edtech. My guests today, Al Kingsley and Matt Harris, saw the potential impact technology could have on teaching and learning very early in their professional lives and are now leading figures in the sector. They are prolific writers and advocates of edtech, well known to our readers as regular contributors to ITM. They've also served on a wide range of regional, national, and international boards, helping schools and teachers understand how best to use technology for the benefit of their students. Al Kingsley, CEO of NetSupport, and Matt Harris, founder of childsafeguarding.com, welcome to the ITM podcast. Perhaps we can start with looking at how you got into uh, the whole technology area. Al, what attracted you to the area of edtech or technology? Because it wasn't necessarily edtech that you started with. Tell us how you started.
2: Well, I suppose the honest answer is accident. Um, I I did like many things. I took parental advice on my career journey, which took me into the world of finance because that's a safe space. Uh, and that was in the in the 80s. And um, actually, I found the, the introduction of technology far more interesting than finance. And actually, the most important thing, I think, if you're wired in a certain way, um, is working in a financial institution, you do things the way they've always been done. And there's not really much scope for innovation. And yet with technology becoming more prevalent and arriving on the desktop within the office space, uh, there was no rules. It was new and it was changing every day. And therefore, there was an opportunity to actually express ideas, be creative, look and try new things. So I very quickly segued from finance to the systems and understanding the systems. Um, And probably like a lot of people, having got involved in developing solutions that would make the use of new technology more effective, um, I had children arrive in the 90s and became much more aware of how technology was starting to infuse into the education space. Um, and we had new schools being built where we moved to. I would had a stint working in the US, back in the UK. Um, and I felt the best way to get involved was to actually become involved in the school, support the school's growth and development. And, and over the years, that kind of two-way collaboration between looking at how technology can facilitate and support and I always hasten to add it's never or should never be tech for tech's sake it's always got to be a purpose and an impact from it um, has led me on a fantastic journey of meeting lots of very interesting people and developing tech for um, schools all around the world and um, yeah that's kind of a very potted summary of my introduction into ed and tech together.
1: But it's interesting that Once you became involved in tech, you saw the potential uh, for it in education, and that pulled you over as you started to have a family. Um, Matt, what about yourself? How
0: How did the journey start for you? Well, mine started more on the technology side. I've always been interested in ICT and its uses and its potential, really. Technology has a lot of potential, not just in the ed, ed space, but a- around the world. And I, I, I love to build and I love to program and I love to use the technology. But I came from a family of educators and as any good educator would do, they um, they very much encouraged me to stay away from education. So um, I did what any good stu- any good son would do. And I disregarded their advice completely and. Um, so I started my journey um, looking into kind of those business elements of technology, as Al was mentioning, and I, I got jobs at various companies and internship capacities. And I was about to take some some big leaps in that space, and then there were there were economic problems, and I, I took a break, and I and I did a reflection in, in a similar way to what Al was mentioning, um, but I was in a different point in my life, and I realized that the mission and vision of those financial and business uses of technology were not meeting what I wanted to do with my life. And so I started getting into the education space and, and frankly, just leaving the the tech space to the side. Well, it took my employers and my schools, not a lot of time to figure out where my where my talents lie. And they asked me to start taking on further and further roles. And everything blossomed and came together where I was able to use the technology for every aspect of of the school environment, be it learning or operations, strategy, anything. And when you have a background in technology that touches everything, and you have an understanding of the operational, administrative, and educational parts of our industry, it's a very interesting nexus of experience where you do understand that potential for impact and you have the ability to put it into practice. So it really has been just a wonderful journey of seeing this growth in technology, seeing this, this uptake in the use of technology for learning and getting to be at the precipice of that. So I've, I've really enjoyed it from beginning to end.
1: Sounds interesting. What was the first thing, Al, that you saw that made a big difference in schools as a direct result of the introduction of technology?
2: Um, I think there was many on the journey. I suppose the most important one in many ways is facilitating peer-to-peer connectivity, actually that collaborative um, element of technology. Technology in the early days was very much a, a, a siloed experience, and I don't want to get into too much into the, the kind of cliché terms, but um, I think where technology unlocked initially was where we could group computers together and have students working on project-based and collaborative work. And then, of course, the, the connectivity to the outside world as the internet has blossomed, providing that access and that connectivity both to great and additional resources they wouldn't otherwise have but also experiences where schools can collaborate and work together I mean I think the journey continues to change Andy doesn't it every year we have a new kind of set of experiences that we can we can measure that have had impact
1: were you a voice in the wilderness in those early days did you find that you had to persuade people to spend the money to make a difference or were people enthusiastic from the word go
2: I think, Andy, depending on where you go in the world and schools you go into, in every school, there will be people who still feel they are a voice in the wilderness and others that feel they've got fantastic support. And I think, you know, one of the challenges in any space, and this is by no means unique to education, but when we think about the role of technology, for many schools, for many years, it's been something worthy of consideration, but not a priority and often when you're busy and you don't have capacity the things that you don't address are the things that if you implemented effectively would build you capacity and free up time for you and, and economies of scale so i think it's been a journey we all recognize now um, i'd argue the workplace is kind of the driver look at the landscape now of what the future workplace is and recognize that those skills need to be something that are embraced within teaching and learning um, i also think in different countries so in the uk we had a, an academization process, bringing lots of individual schools together into centrally coordinated groups, well, that automatically creates the opportunity for effective use of technology, for consolidation of data, economies of scale, how we keep our children safe, how we collaborate resources between teachers in different schools. Uh, and, and so each time there's a change in the educational landscape, and it's different country by country, that then provides an opportunity for another layer of technology as J- as a just shared you know if used effectively and you understand where it can add benefits uh, to be leveraged by schools that are open-minded to it
1: so being open-minded to it and taking advantage of what's coming along matt what um what was it like in california in the early part of your career was it sort of excitement all around it was all happening or again Was it a a kind of pioneering journey that you went on to persuade people to come with you?
0: It's interesting to hear Al's uh, viewpoint of the external communications and the external resources as a driving force, because my view is actually quite the opposite. It's more of an internal view. Um, And as you've said, my experiences in the space started in California. We were in the heart of Silicon Valley, even as as a child, and watching things moving faster than we could believe. And it wasn't until we got to the point of individual connectivity and connecting to each person on their needs rather than connecting the individuals to the outside elements. Those, those were there. There was there some elements of that in, in most of um, the schools and the experiences that I saw. It was when we, we did individual devices or individual accounts or individual whatever it was to give that personalized locus of control that we started seeing this major shift. And I guess what I'm feeling there is that it it wasn't the workplace, because in our area, the workplace was always digitized. There was always a tool coming through. It was the social norms. It was the communication norms. It was the various uh, accesses to, to media that were doing laps around education. And I would argue they're still doing that today. But education finally coming on board with the individualization and connectivity of people rather than resources to people, is where things started to shift. When we started looking at learning management systems and individualized devices and personalized learning plans, that's when we started seeing the real power of what technology can do on an individual basis rather than on a group basis or on a school basis or on a district basis. So yeah, getting to see those things built and coming into our classrooms before they were even ready for public consumption was fascinating. But it wasn't until they matched the desires, interests, and needs of an individual that that really we weren't we weren't hitting the nail on the head.
2: And at that point,
0: Al, sorry, Carrie. Yeah,
2: I mean, I really like what what Matt's saying, and I and I I kind of reflect from from his experiences in California. Um, I just kind of felt it was kind of an interesting one because thinking back to the '90s in the UK when technology started to appear in the classrooms. Actually, much of the driver was about the haves and have-nots, place-based access. Um, and actually, during the 90s, that connectivity to the outside world, which actually meant access to online resources or the, the infancy of online resources, was a really important catalyst because it also transposed itself across to be access to home learning resources. Again, digital equity to one side. Um, so I think it, it's interesting because, you know, I don't disagree with Matt's point that as we move the timeline along and we move into the 2000s and, and, and so on, the the more we can look at technology in a personalized way rather than a blanket prescriptive way, the more there are advantages for each learner. So I think there's kind of an interesting, if you, if you wind the dial depending on where you are in the timeline, where, where technology was, was prevalent or less so.
0: Well, and I think, I think to that point as well, um, you know, Al, you, you come from an industry that is as much operational as it is instructional, right? And when we talk about the, the technical revolution in schools, we tend to focus primarily on the learning aspects. But it has been this operational shift of systemization and digitization that really has moved the needle forward. And, and as the needs of, of schools have been digitization from an operational standpoint, more so than the learning standpoint, which is going to come. And it will come as, as society changes. But the time periods that you've mentioned and I've mentioned really saw major, major strides in the schools embracing technology from STEM to stern. That's where we started getting this shift. That's when we understood that the haves had quite a bit and everybody needed to have this digitization from the report cards to the student experience to, to the whole long term. It's that view that, that technology touches everything that has been probably the most revolutionary rather than an add-on or a replication of practices as what I found in the, in the 90s. It really is. There's nothing you can do in a school now that doesn't have some connection to technology.
1: Matt, you were at the very heart of what was starting to happen in, in the US, and then you moved overseas. What prompted you to go overseas? Why did you go there? And What effect did it have on the way you perceive that uh, ed tech was important?
0: So my career in terms of technology has always been one around modification or development or building. So creating new programs. So I've been the the first to hold my my technology position in, in three of the schools that I've worked in, and in the fourth one I came in to to kind of update things. So with that that mindset or that approach, there's there's a sell-by date on, on your job. You know, I'm not there to continue things on from, from year to year. My, my job has always been to build things, bring in these new technologies and to, to facilitate that digitization. And so I was at a, at a career point where I'd done it in a, at a couple of schools and they had really made significant progress. But my wife and I had always had this interest of looking, looking outward and, and seeing what is really happening around the world beyond just traveling and visiting and, and really engaging in that. Um, she was doing a lot of work internationally. I had had a number of connections through my, my various, uh, boards and advisory roles. And so we thought, why don't we take the plunge? You know, we were at a perfect point in our lives and let's go do it. And I'll tell you that from a professional standpoint, it's one of the best things I've ever done because living internationally and working in, in kind of these third culture environments. And I think, you know what I'm talking about, Andy, where you don't belong to the host culture, You don't really belong to your own culture anymore because you've left it, so you're in this kind of third space. It gives you the opportunity to understand how things work elsewhere and to investigate your own practice. So I'll give you a good example. We were in a school that was tied to um, continental European practices, and we had a very long discussion about whether we should put windows on the doors. Coming from America, coming from the US and being a very litigious society, that's a slam dunk. Put the windows <laughs> on the doors, we know what's going on. This continental European viewpoint was no, no, no. I'm a teacher. I'm in charge of this situation. You're an administrator. You're, you're just here to serve me. So why would I give you greater access to my environment? And I still have a strong feeling about that. But understanding the roles and responsibilities and and viewpoints of how schools should work is an important is, is just been a hugely valuable thing for me. Then throw the technology element on there. Um as well because technology in every country is 100% different. You know, in the UK you have amazing architecture, infrastructure, availability of resources we had that in the US. I worked in Jakarta. So did you, Andy? I did. you think, you think we we had discussions about how many internet lines we needed to bring into the school because they might get cut. So we had multiple ones cuz some guy up the street might be putting in a power line and just cuts the line. You know? So having those those Having your assumptions and your comfort levels adjusted gives you a much better understanding of the power and potential of what technology can do to enhance and change the, the learning experience.
1: Interesting. And Al, your work was mainly with schools in the UK to start off with, but uh, a lot more international uh, work has come your way. When, when did you start becoming aware that international
2: schools were in, an important market for you uh, an important people to talk to? Um, I think it was the late '90s. Um, in fact, it was '99 that I jumped on an airplane to Atlanta, USA, and moved there for uh, two and a half years to establish working with school districts across the U.S. and Canada. Um, and as our technology is is always about that underlying foundation to get the most out of the technology, whether it's the broader administration of a school or the classroom orchestration or the online safety aspects of for a child. Um, it kind of grew with localization and reputation. We also worked with a lot of, um, hardware manufacturers who were looking at what was going to be the right fit for technology within education. And they introduced us to the point where we. You know, I've worked now with just over 110 countries around the world and just over 20 million users that we support. So we've done, and it's interesting hearing Matt's experiences because it it resonates. We did one laptop per child projects in Kenya, smart learning project in the UAE, Malaysia, and other regions. And absolutely, every location is different. And and sometimes those things that you talk about as being the amazing value add the technology unlocks doesn't really help if you've got 30... uh, Clamshell laptops, and you don't have an internet connection, and you're looking for a centralized local server of resources powered by solar or something similar. Um, but I think understanding with greater connectivity the opportunity for the global classroom and global resources I mean, that's all about in the same way as I talk about place based opportunity in the UK. Well, around the world, you know, one of the levers with technology alongside those massive changes in operational efficiency and the tools that we use to administer and run our schools is actually the opportunity to connect and provide learning experiences with children all around the world. And that's something that I'm I'm really passionate about and and love to travel to learn about that in different regions. We've talked about
1: how schools use ed tech to administer themselves, to track student progress, and actually to deliver new types of learning in the classroom. When we look at the scene now, what is the most important difference EdTech has made to learning, in your opinion? Matt, perhaps we could start with you.
0: I'm sorry to say this, but I'm going to have to bring up a pretty big negative. Go on. Um, that is that I think EdTech, in its current iteration, missed a golden opportunity over the last three years. We've talked for quite a while, and you know, ed, uh, Al and I have just mentioned this, that there is immense potential with technology, but potential, not promise. There's no guarantee that it's going to do all of these wonderful things that we said it can do. And over the last two years, people have been forced to be on technology. And I think that has been one of the most difficult educational experiences for people around the world. And so I, I think, frankly, that EdTech has been taken back a few years because it did not shine People weren't out there holding the torches and saying, great, people are at home. We're going to make this a wonderful, personalized experience. I mean, I sat in the rooms with my children. I helped schools around the world. And there was such a negative viewpoint around what was going on in terms of the technology-infused learning. And so I think EdTech actually has a lot to do to build up its reputation again. If I went into a school and said, we're going to implement hybrid learning with the teachers, they would not be very happy about that right now. They're still licking the wounds from the last few years of doing it with, uh, within this environment that I am in. Um, so I, I think that the potential is still there. And I would argue that it's even more so uh, with pr- these personalized learning tools and the, the distribution of, of knowledge. The, the multilingual support we have around the world and these new practices around bringing people into classrooms and bringing classrooms into homes. But we really need to repair the reputation. We really need to get some wins with EdTech in order for it to be seen as something of value as it was seen before.
1: Al, perhaps uh, you comment on that because that's a, an interesting point of view.
2: Well, it's an interesting point of view. And based on the fact that it's experiences from the field, I certainly wouldn't disagree with Matt's point of view, but I'm I'm going to take a twist because, like all things, it it isn't unique across all schools. And I think I'll build on Matt's point, which is I think EdTech is now better embedded. We've got more technology in schools than we ever had, albeit not all being used effectively. Um, And we have seen, um, we've seen that there has been progression in some of the core building blocks, not necessarily the the innovation that we want on the back end, because I think the last two years we've actually moved the narrative around evidence informed edtech and looking at the the actual impact that it's having. So I'd say that for certainly, if I think about the schools that are parts of our clusters here and in the US, um, there is great collaboration and communication between specialists in different schools rather than that kind of siloed working I talked about at the beginning. I do think we've got greater use and more, although it's still on a journey, effective use of data to inform. I do think there are a range now of solutions that support that personalized learning pathway. Some love to jump on the AI story around that, and there's some debate and discussion around those, but there are solutions that are there. And of course, I think the the learning experience from home is never going to replicate the, the classroom experience, but we actually have a lot of people who are now more capable and competent with the foundations. So, in many ways, whilst I support Matt's point of view, I also think now's the golden opportunity. We either lose that muscle memory and confidence and revert back to type, or we actually build on the infrastructure that's been put in place and actually start to really leverage the gains from it.
1: So, Matt, do you see? A reaction against EdTech as a result of the experience of the last two years? Something, oh, God, we had to do that then. Thank God we don't have to do it anymore. We're back in the classroom, and we can just get on with proper, in inverted commas, teaching. Is that what you're seeing?
0: Yes. And I think the things that Al mentioned, and I have to push back on him, are are foundational elements of EdTech. EdTech has three elements. There's a foundational element around access, tools, data, all of the pieces. We have those. I don't disagree. There is then the practices of using those for teaching and learning for operations, whatever. And then there's the learned experience on top of that. So think about a pyramid, the learned experience, the empowerment, the the student experience that leads towards greater innovations and all of those things are at the top. I would agree with you that the bottom layer is pretty strong. We have a lot of technology in a lot of places and that's great. We have data informed items. But we're not seeing those practices that we would hope we would see at that second level at the degree that we would expect at this point. And I think there is an attitudinal challenge with a majority of educators that I talk to across multiple countries, the U.S., the U.K., various parts of Asia, Australia. I talk to people in India and they don't want to touch a computer for a very long time because they were forced to do this longer than others. And we won't even get started on China. Um, And so there is this attitudinal piece which affects that second layer that focuses on the lived experiences and the uses of technology by nature then affects the top level achievement, um, empowerment, and we are seeing numbers around a number of schools around the world that those achievement numbers have actually gone down over the last two years. Why wasn't technology being used in a way to to enhance them? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that, but I do think that the attitudes are are quite negative around technology right now. Is this
2: something that you would agree with or not, L? I'd love to give Matt a hug and cheer him up a bit on that topic. And um, listen, <laughs> the truth Wait, of let course. Let me just is- say
0: this: I mean, cause, so here's the deal. The very first lockdown that we had. Here I am. I've I've started. Uh, I've started a business at this point, so I have a lot of freedom of time and experience. I have two children that were under, at that point, under eight years old, and we are sharing a space. So I have at my disposal, two devices on either side of me, I'm working away at my bit, and I can take breaks whenever I want. I also have a doctorate in education. I've taught all of these grade levels, and I've worked in ed tech. And I struggled, it was a challenge. And imagine not having those tools in all the other places around the world. And so I tried to help others as best I could, but I you could tell that there was a struggle. And anecdotally, I think hard, hard data-wise, we saw this quite a bit, that there was consistent struggle. And that struggle now, as I'm finding as I talk to teachers, has, has had some impacts on attitudes around willing to engage in the the innovative practices that we need them to engage in in order to utilize all that great technology and data and AI that we we have available to us. So anyway.
2: Al, cheer, cheer Matt up. <laughs> well, well listen, in terms of that first lockdown and experiences for any parent and educator during that period, I don't think anyone's gonna say that was a pleasant and successful period because it clearly was a case of trying to find ways to partially mitigate what was perceived as that learning loss. However, um Again, you know, I think you have to recognize that, I mean, I've seen it. there's plenty of schools. Only two weeks ago, I was speaking across at the guest conference in Dubai, in the Middle East. And some of the trailblazers I accept are those that are in a better position financially, the international schools. There's lots of appetite and lots of exemplars of of innovation and technology being deployed. It's pockets, and it's about how we continue to share that practice to support, I suppose there are plenty who are tired of tech because it's had such a dominance for the last couple of years. But actually, the tech that Matt referred to at the beginning, some of that infrastructural tech, is actually becoming the, the key lever at the moment. While we've got capacity issues in schools, financial pressures, actually, those tools are are, are being used to, to unlock time and resources. Um, and and I, th- I think there are definitely really good shoots when it comes to the evidence around the pedagogy, the curriculum-based resources. But Matt's right to be cautious because we've gone through a position where we're actually asking the question rather than the answer now, will it become further embedded? Will we build confidence? And will staff learn to feel it's a key part of the toolbox or something that's been imposed on them? So
1: if we're at a bit of a hiatus now, one way or another, where would you like to see it going, Matt? What would you like to see uh, teachers embracing
0: I think that Al hit the nail on the head and he said it overtly once and he's alluded to it in other spaces and including in his last statement, the gap between the haves and the have nots is, is monumental. Now it was monumental during the pandemic. It got worse during the pandemic because those resources, whether actually technological or the, the ability to support teachers was, was huge and this is, this is frankly why I got into ed tech and it's why we built childsafeguarding.com. So childsafeguarding.com uses technology to teach child abuse prevention to school support staff. And we do it in a way that's accessible. We offer it in multiple languages and we've also, we offer it in multiple countries. And so now we have it in 67 countries teaching people that normally wouldn't get e-learning experience. When you talk about e-learning and CPD in a school, it's primarily the teachers. So even in that dichotomy, you have a have and have not approach. But the whole point of technology is to offer potential and equal access and all of these things, but we're, we're really not doing that. And so I think if we took the time um, as an industry to not just talk about teachers, not just talk about students, but talk about the students that need it the most, talk about the staff members that need it the most, and utilize those resources for a greater growth rather than pockets of excellence as we mentioned there's always going to be pockets of excellence and you know what those schools are going to be excellent with or without the technology they they don't they don't need that boost but using the technology to help grow the potential or grow the the impact on students or staff members or teachers that that don't normally get focused upon that is a wonderful opportunity right now and I'd really like to see us focusing more on that
1: how would you like to see this potential unleashed, Al? How, what, where should we putting, be putting our resources to, to to ensure the things that Matt wants to happen, happens?
2: Well, you know, I, I'm reassured because I agree with Matt. You know, I'm a Digital Poverty Alliance ambassador, and I absolutely believe that fundamentally technology has to be leveraging for all. Um, and one of the challenges is when we look at often the message about levelling up and adding great new technology and infrastructure, we actually inadvertently extend the digital divide. Um, so I think one of the messages I always talk about, you know, is is keep it simple. It's not about who's got the most technology wins the race. That's not the measure of a successful school. It's where it can be used to ultimately, I believe, develop children's skills. And it's all about their digital skills, their critical thinking skills, their ability to access and research, as Matt sh- shared their ability to understand how to keep themselves safe uh, and so much more, because those are the skills that we take to the workplace. So, you know, I- I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. I believe there is a growing re- set of resources and tools and solutions that are available that are now building the evidence behind them that they can with the right use and the right training have, have genuine impact. But I also believe that we've got a much broader political challenge which is about that equity of access first and foremost so that we can really level up on a consistent basis internationally
1: so you're talking about a political issue as well as an educational issue it's got to become a priority for governments if i'm not mistaken is that right
2: Absolutely. I think we, we started with the, you know, nationally, we'd talk about our infrastructure for, you know, speed of Internet connectivity within each country. But we don't always talk about, well, does that mean that every child has access? And, and as Matt's referred to, what if you can't afford to have two devices to, and you've got two children, that equity of that. So whilst we can see the opportunity with digital resources, it's only really unlocked if everybody has equal and fair access to them. Otherwise, you push down the argument and say, well, if actually all kids can't have it, we need to go back to the lowest common denominator. What's the thing that all kids can have? And then we're down the, you know, we, we're stepping ourselves back a good few years. And of course, the truth is, there's a place for both. You know, some of the best lessons don't involve technology at all. And thank, thankfully so. So I, I think it's, it's recognizing the opportunity. But when we get to 18 years of old, whether we like it or not, we will be stepping into a world that requires us to be digitally conversant, digitally skilled, and as Matt's alluded to, also hopefully digitally safe as good digital citizens. So those are all things that we can only learn partially by the experiences and, and our immersion in technology during our learning journey.
1: There's a lot to look forward to and a lot to think about. You've given us huge uh, food for thought there, both of you. Thank you very much indeed, Al Kingsley of Net Support and Matt Harris of childsafearven.com for joining the ITM podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you.
2: Thanks, Andy.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Talking About the ITM podcast. Visit conciliumeducation.com. Copyright 2022. Produced by Jay Lasky Voices. Providing sound solutions for your voiceover needs. JayLaskyVoices.com.